0: Hello, everyone. This is Harpreet Singh at Harvard University, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are delighted to be speaking with Dr. Thomas Cohan, who is the George Maverick Bunker Professor of Management, Professor of Work and Employment Research, and the Co-Director of the Institute for Work and Employment Research at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Professor Cohan, welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to be here. I want to start uh, by uh, understanding a little bit about your background. Uh, Can you tell us uh, where you grew up, uh, some defining moments of your life, and how you ended up in academia?
1: Sure. Well, uh, I grew up on a small dairy farm in the state of Wisconsin in the Midwest, and uh, got sort of, I guess, intrigued by how people work together, because on a small farm, you have to work with your neighbors, you have to work as a family, and and got in didn't really understand uh, why I was interested in it, but it seemed like it stuck with me through college at the university of Wisconsin. Uh, I had a very, very good program, uh, in industrial relations. And so that's uh, what I did. And then, uh, ended up teaching, um, uh, at Cornell in their school of labor and industrial relations, uh, and then came to MIT in 1980 to, uh, Uh, work on uh, rebuilding our Ph.D. program and really uh, accelerate research on work and employment issues. And over the years, um, I've always valued this field because it allows us to teach students about uh, these issues, to do good research with companies and with public policy organizations and labor market institutions and unions and to be involved in uh, Practical and public policy affairs. So it's a nice mix and it uh, keeps me busy.
0: Well, I, I can see you've been very busy. Uh, so your, your work focuses largely on how to shape the future of work. How, how did you get interested in this area of research? Uh, and what have been your main motiv- motivations for doing this kind of work?
1: Well, over the years, uh, a, a constant theme in my work has been the need to update. Our public policies our institutions and our organizational practices to catch up with the changing nature of work The changing workforce increased diversity obviously in the workforce the changing way in which we organize work, whether it's uh, in uh, uh, traditional employment relationships or in uh, uh, more of what we now call the gig economy uh, or where we have the need for much better collaboration between workers and employers and unions and companies and so on. And so I've been uh, uh, constantly interested in how we can change work. And then as these debates around automation and robots gonna take uh, all of our jobs and what's the future of AI and so on, um, I began uh, encouraging uh, us at MIT to take up those issues. And we now have a task force on, on work of the future at MIT that I'm part of. I also teach a uh, online course uh, through the MIT and EdX platform on shaping work of the future, and there it it takes up all of these themes and draws in lots of experts, but really focuses on how do we build a new social contract in America and around the world to deal with these issues because we have so many people left behind, so much need for innovation, and we we are not uh, addressing these issues adequately in an age where inequality gets worse and worse And now with the COVID uh, crisis, we see a lot of the weaknesses in our policies in our institutions In our practices sort of laid bare uh, for uh, 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 All to see and uh, The need for very uh, Quick emergency responses. So my hope is that right now we will use this as a learning opportunity to get on with building a new social contract that uh, is more inclusive uh, for people in society and deals with um, uh, some of the, the, the tragic consequences that we're experiencing at work today.
0: So, so how, that's very interesting. So, how do you take uh, Rosso's social contract and you translate that to the uh, contemporary one? Um, sure. What are the, uh, the, the salient features here?
1: Well, when, when, when I use that term, obviously it is borrowed from our philosopher friends uh, who used it in the political sense, uh, Jacques uh, Oxford, uh, others as well. But I define it as what are the mutual expectations and obligations that we have for employers, for workers, for public policy makers with respect to work and employment relationships? What do we expect out of work What should we hold all the parties accountable for helping to achieve and then how can we make sure that this is inclusive? Because the essence of the social contract, as our political philosophers used it, was what are the obligations of the state, that is the government, to the citizens? And what are the reciprocal obligations of the citizens to contributing to an effective and just uh, state and society? So just applying that to the workplace where we spend so much of our energy and time and we depend on it for so much of our economic livelihood, our, self, our identities, our social interactions and our psychological welfare. I believe we can, we can build a better social contract if we can get all of the parties, uh, workers and their representatives, uh, employers, Government and I would put in educators now, given the importance of education in our our uh, labor force. If we can get these parties to work together, I think we can build a better social contract at work that is both more productive, more resilient, and more equitable and more inclusive.
0: So, so in in, in that social contract, do you see that these various stakeholders coming to the table, uh, and and uh, is one player. Um, uh, you you know, has more power than another. For for example, if we endow more power to the government, then we are more in a socialist context than in a capitalist context. So how how do you think about capitalism, socialism in in, in this uh, picture?
1: Well, I believe that since the 1980s, we have vested much, much more power in uh, the business community and corporations. We've deregulated in the United States, uh, a lot of our labor markets and a lot of our our, uh, product markets. And we've had international competition and and that uh, uh, has given employers more choice on where they locate work. We've uh, allowed more uh, flexibility, for example, in uh, how we define uh, who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. Uh, and we've decimated, uh, in the United States at least, uh, pretty much the labor movement. And so, right now, I think the real challenge comes in how do we get employers to be more responsive and to recognize that the world is changing? And I think we are now in a world that uh, is changing. We're seeing much, much more employee activism, We're, uh, much more interest in having a stronger voice at work. Uh, A more productive voice they don't want necessarily just to go back to unions as uh, We've defined them or shaped them in the past, but they Expect to have a voice and right now in the COVID uh, situation We see some countries uh, in europe doing a better job Of bringing these parties together what they call social partners in germany and scandinavia and so on in the united states We don't see any of that and Mm -hmm. and so we're seeing more conflicts And more challenges develop at the workplace because we don't have that kind of institutional Interaction and mutual respect and I think we've got to learn from this experience That that's a missing part of our society and a missing part of our workplaces and we're gonna have to rebalance power But we have to do it in a way that people understand uh, That we've got to we've got to prepare uh, For a more productive economy and a more resilient one
0: so in, you you mentioned some of these other uh, nations such as Germany. So what are they doing that is different? What do you what do you like about them?
1: Well, that, uh, that that's a really good question. There's there's three things that they are doing differently. First, uh, when the crisis began to really hit uh, in Germany and in Denmark and in Sweden, the 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 uh, the leaders of the country uh, turned to industry and labor and said here's what we are going to do and here's what we hope you will do and let's let's work together on this and so for example in germany they have something called short hours or re, where instead of laying people off they have provisions that are widely used to reduce hours of everyone everybody takes a bit of a pay cut uh, their government subsidizes through its unemployment insurance system uh, uh some of that that pay loss and companies and unions can negotiate if they want uh to to supplement that and so they did this a lot during the great recession of 19, uh, 2007 to 2009 and as a result germany came back faster uh, and was more resilient after the recession subsided than other countries particularly than the united states and so here here they, they, they have a policy to try to keep people employed as much as they can um, and they have uh, uh, industry and labor working through the adaptation. So for example, the, a big industrial union in, in, in Germany called IG Metall worked with the, the metal workers association of employers to say here are, some, here are a whole series of safety precautions, here are a whole series of other things that we think we need to do with you to manage through this process and that I think will serve Germany very well and you see some of that in Denmark you see some of that in other countries uh, but we have uh, have not uh, turned in that direction here now some of us are working very hard at the moment at the state level to do uh, some of this the state of Washington uh, in its because it was one of the uh, first epicenters of the uh, COVID crisis turned to uh, the healthcare uh, sector and to labor unions active in healthcare and brought them together to work with their state commissioner on, uh, responsible for managing through the crisis. We're trying to do some of that here in Massachusetts. Uh, it's a little slower going, but uh, we're working on it. And I think we need to need to do that at, uh, at state levels uh, in healthcare. I think there are other industries that are going to have to have massive redeployment of, of, of people uh, to uh, figure out how they're going to reopen as the economy comes back, uh, and to to help those people who are now viewed as essential workers. That is the you know the healthcare workers, the people in our grocery stores, people delivering. Uh, Food, the people who are uh, our food processors who who need to keep the supply chain uh, functioning Those people were underappreciated and often underpaid in the past and they need to uh, be uh, uh, Their needs need to be addressed because they have short-term needs of going to work when there's risks They're worried about their families. Some of them are getting sick and we've got to figure out. What's the appropriate way to uh, provide more human resources in those sectors, back up and support those workers, and then figure out what do we learn from all of this going forward so I think that's why that's why I think this is such a, a critical moment for all of us to be working in a collaborative fashion um, uh, on these issues and then to learn the lessons from it
0: so so the uh, the hurdles uh, what are the hurdles uh, obviously us is a federal structure, so um, each state can come in and, uh, uh, you know, redefine policy. So, for example, when it came to universal healthcare, Massachusetts was at the forefront and yes. uh, and, and did many things right before, uh, you know, other states or the federal government uh, you know, is just starting to think about many of those things. So, so in, in the context of future work, um, it, is it the policymakers or their, their ideology that generally drives um, how the changes to occur? Or is it uh you know uh, influence from the corporate sector how how, uh, what are the hurdles what are the challenges the challenges are that we have an impasse on policy
1: making on these issues that has been going on for at least uh, uh, 30 30 years Uh, business and labor are at loggerheads and the ideological differences are pretty substantial business doesn't want any change or anything that uh, reduces their discretion um, and doesn't want to do anything that reduces the discretion of individual firms as opposed to many of us now believe that we need solutions that cut across firms because we have some as you know and we all know some outstanding employers doing all kinds of innovative things and we should be learning from those best practices but then we have a lot of firms that are not uh, uh, as progressive, and we need to bring up the floor and and try to find maybe uh, industry-wide uh, uh, institutions that that move in the right direction, so people aren't left out. Uh, but it's 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 this ideological uh, 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 barrier that we have to break through. Now I think we are breaking through it today because the the. Um, the the hardships that people are experiencing are going to have an imprint on us and particularly on young people as they observe this and and are caught in it trying to find their way in the labor market maybe for their first job or early on and and, 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 uh, they're going to be asking, you know, we've got to do something better than this. And so I'm hoping that we will uh, use this as a time to reflect on what uh, led us to this uh, situation, not to, to the COVID crisis, obviously that's a healthcare tragedy, but uh, 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 what led us to be so unprepared and so unresilient, if that's a word, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, to
0: this kind of a shock on, on our society? So, so um yeah. Another related aspect, right? This, is, this goes beyond uh, uh, COVID 19. Obviously, this pandemic is uh, massive and it's going to have a lasting impact on our economy, on our workforce. <clears throat> but, but I think another uh, major crisis that's about to happen is through AI and automation. And, yeah. uh, and, and that also is going to impact uh, folks in jobs with low cognitive skills. Uh, you know for folks who cannot be upskilled um, so how do you think about' uh, this, this new industrial revolution that's underway um, and, 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 and and you know what so so maybe you can start there and you know your thoughts sure. on that
1: Well, i I think that is still the biggest issue uh, of our time once we get through this crisis uh, we'll we'll be able to focus a bit more mm-hmm. on it but uh I think we've got to redefine how we bring artificial intelligence into our workplace and into our society. Too often, artificial intelligence and robotics, for that matter, are, are developed by some inventor external, outside of uh, the, the, the world of business and the world of, of work. And they come up with a a solution and then push it through industry and push it on to companies and say we've got a new um, set of tools here and we think it solves a set of problems and we and businesses then start to experiment with it but they bring it in sequentially and they find that it it, it may not be solving the problems that they they really have we need to redefine it so as we are in right now by Society, which has a big stake in this, defining what our critical problems are, and then putting AI to work to help resolve it and bring the multiple voices in society that have a stake in defining the problem to define it appropriately. That's what we're seeing now with all kinds of wonderful, wonderful, uh, quick adaptations and, and, and innovations with all sorts of technology in response to this crisis. We need a demand pull form of artificial intelligence that says, let's figure out what some of our biggest problems, whether it's in healthcare or in the uh, environment to uh, for uh, dealing with climate change and a variety of other, other issues. And let's put our best talent uh, to work in thinking about how we use AI. Let me give you my uh, pet peeve example of where we have gone wrong this whole notion of uh, uh, autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. Why do we care about having driverless cars? Who wants driverless cars? Well, you have all these uh, entrepreneurs out there in the automobile industry, and then in the high-tech industry, as you know, that are racing to be the first to get to what they call level five of uh, autonomous vehicles, that is where we can sit and read a book and uh, and go from Boston to New York or wherever we need to go. Well, that's a long way off, but that's what they're trying to all focus on. Why do we care about that? Why wouldn't we want to really define the problem as, gee, we really want safer, more efficient, more accessible transportation systems. And all of this technology can help us get there. But we've got to integrate it with our urban planning systems, our highway systems, the infrastructure that's needed um, and define it. Uh, the, define the technology as a piece of this larger system. And, and then, you know, we, we are benefiting from an enormous amount of, of new technology, including that, that has an artificial intelligence base to it. Um, because it keeps our cars safe for all of the technology that we buy. In, in existing new new vehicles, keeping us in the in our, our appropriate lane, having collision avoidance before the driver might uh, recognize the problem. Those are all wonderful, wonderful innovations that that can help us move in a, in a safer direction. But we shouldn't leave the decisions about what the artificial intelligence system is designed to uh, solve to just the entrepreneurs, because they're they have a very narrow view of of what what's uh, at stake.
0: So, so the the, uh, the uh, uh, recent Harvard's put out um, uh, this this uh, thought leadership piece sometime back that um, you you need uh, some jurisdictions to provide, uh, uh, I, I guess, deregulation for the entrepreneur if we're going to move to the next level so i, th- I think that so for example you know if, if i want to uh, have innovation in, the, in, in drones <clears throat> then i need um, uh, let's say idaho or um, uh, massachusetts to give uh, to deregulate the flying of drones in a certain area and uh, and so so that then we can have experimentation and we can move forward but i think that that kind of fits into your thesis that, you know, uh, if, if you work with the urban planners, if you work with the state and you work collaboratively, then even though we're taking more risks, we will be able to de risk some of that and we will be able to, uh, you, know, you know, provide a, uh, a better pathway to success so that, you know, the, uni- the entrepreneur is not working unilaterally, but we're working in a larger ecosystem.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, and put this on a global scale. I mean, the potential for using uh, uh, the combination of, of, of data and uh, uh, GPS and, uh, and the technology of drones for delivering medical supplies in rural areas or in uh, developing countries that don't have in the transportation infrastructure and to get um, uh, needed medical supplies to people um, efficiently it's just an, an has an enormous potential for world health and if we thought about it that way then then you would think about okay in um, uh, sub-saharan africa what kind of systems do we need to support building that kind of capacity for distribution and what's the technology of the drones and what size and and how do they need to be designed and where do they fit into all of the other uh elements uh that that are needed that's an enormous potential for technology and 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 the artificial intelligence base to all of that is critical uh and and people have all the the talent motivation and skills needed to to develop those kinds of tools uh for for good uses and i i want to see more of that uh because i think uh we will benefit uh, enormously and yes there will be some uh, you know the debate about are we going to lose more jobs than we create we don't we're gonna we're gonna create new jobs we're gonna lose some jobs that's the history of technological change and we should prepare for for that development as well so that we take um, do care of those people who most are at risk for losing a job and are fair to them in terms of giving them advanced training and other activities helping them to make that adjustment compensating them uh, dealing with with the losses because society benefits but the big the big opportunities are to shape the technology not to view it as some outside deterministic law of physics or law of, of of mathematics but as something that that we can we can shape to address problems. We can bring the right stakeholders together and we can have uh, enormous, enormous potential. I think in in particularly in in the climate change area, I I mean, this isn't my um, area of expertise, but I think there's enormous, enormous potential for using uh, these technologies uh, in helping us to build the infrastructure and to, Uh, mitigate the the effects of of, of climate change, as well as, as I mentioned, in healthcare and in uh, uh, reducing poverty around the world. This episode is brought to you by ExperFi. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, ExperFi provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds
0: and skill taxonomies. ExperFi differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills.
1: However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employer intermobility can license the Experify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience.
0: So, so um we we know that some jobs will be lost and th- th- there are some dire predictions that uh, a lot of jobs are going to be lost uh, as things become more automated uh, over the next few years so who has the responsibility for upskilling is it academia is it uh, the, the corporations is it government um, obviously academia is going to continue doing what it's doing um, but when it comes to corporations and governments, like what are the ways in which they can be engaged?
1: Let me go back to this point about the social contract, because it's all of us. We can't just leave it to corporations. We can't just leave it to government. And certainly we can't just leave it to education. We are probably the most conservative and slowest institution to change, as, as, as you know. Uh, but I think there is change in education. Uh, and what we are doing right here, is a new way of educating and reaching, you know, large, large uh, audiences, uh, hopefully with constructive uh, materials, ideas and and, and information and so on. And the online courses like the one I teach, but the ones that are, are taught by thousands of people now are going to expand. What we need to do is to move beyond the normal audiences of young people in college to support lifelong learning of people at all occupational levels. And if we do that on education, then we are contributing our part to uh, a new social contract and using these technologies, uh, in this case communication technologies and and, and, and so on, uh, to, to contribute to a new social contract. Corporations have a particular responsibility because they do have uh, uh, are the moving parties in most of the uh, um, uh, economic innovation, and, and rightfully so, both entrepreneurs from upstart, startup uh, organizations, um, but also large companies. Uh, and they have a responsibility to be open to other voices working with them um, to address these issues. Labor as uh, unions and works councils and sitting on corporate boards of directors in, in some countries from co-determination in Europe uh, um, and, and, and elsewhere, has a, a special obligation to say, we've got to prepare our members and the workforce in, 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 in general for the changes in technologies. That means we have to, as labor, learn about these technologies and what how they operate how they might affect work how do we help facilitate them and at the same time make sure that worker interests are brought into this process so i think that's the kind kind of combination and then government since government funds a lot of the basic technology in in, in all of our countries they have a, a right to have a voice in in this but uh, i don't think any of us would want government to dictate what the technology should do. We want them to support basic research. We want them to hold people accountable for using it in ethical ways and protecting privacy. And we want them to um, uh, make sure that the the funding is addressing uh, large problems and create the incentives. So they should not tell the universities or the research labs how to uh, 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 modify their investments in autonomous vehicles, but they should create incentives with funding to say, we wanna fund efficient, safe, accessible transportation systems. And if you can help us figure out how to do that with uh, your uh, uh, genius technologies, then that's, that's fantastic. But that what we're gonna shape, uh, at least the call for some of these bigger Bigger, bigger questions, and then let let the marketplace of ideas and uh, our science and technology experts and our social scientists work together to uh, uh,
0: uh,
1: to uh, make it happen.
0: So, so uh, have you, in this context, um, thought about how one measures the skills gap? That you know, how, how do we think about reskilling, upskilling?
1: No. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think we. Uh, have to recognize that the skills of the future are a hybrid mix of both technical literacy, to be sure, because we are in a world of, of rapidly changing and advancing technologies. So all uh, workers, young and existing uh, workers in the labor force, need to be have some facility in working with technology, and some will be deep, and some will will not be uh, quite as deep, but at least being able to 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 not be afraid of it, to use it, to work with it, and to uh, uh, apply it in their particular jobs. But we also need to invest in what many, many people now see uh, are described as the soft skills. That is, technology is not self-implementing. We solve problems with technology and with each other by being good at communicating, at problem-solving, at leadership, at negotiating and resolving different points of view in a in a work group or in an organization um, because we bring different ideas and therefore some people are strong-minded and so we have to work on negotiating in a in a constructive way. But these social skills are becoming even more important in an interdependent world. And so when we measure skills, we've got to think about the technical and the social skills. And both are are teachable. Certainly, the technical skills at different levels for different people are are teachable, but the social skills can be taught through experience, by teamwork. you know, i'm I'm delighted to see uh, so many of our young people now uh, in grade schools, high schools, vocational schools, colleges, working in teams on problems, getting much more. Engaged in in uh, sharing ideas and contributing in in, in uh, teamwork because that is so important in our workplaces, even in this world of virtual communications, the kind of ability now to to work together uh, even if we're not in the same place and to share ideas and to uh, 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 to, uh, to 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 be able to make progress together even if we're not physically together is becoming even more important and more apparent so i don't think there is a um, a a single skill that we are missing it's this combination and that's where we should be putting our energy i believe that we can it, it it's it's as much a training and workforce development gap as it is a skills gap if we put our energy to Really investing in um, in the workforce, in providing them the, the opportunities, mixing both uh, online, uh, in classroom, and on the job uh, training and education. That's the ticket to uh, uh, preparing the workforce for the future.
0: So, so spe- uh, speaking of gaps, uh, you you talk extensively about uh, uh, the voice gap. Can you talk about that? Sure. We have a a problem around the world, but
1: particularly in the United States with the decline of of unions uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, Right now, at at a peak in the United States, about one third of the labor force was represented under unions and collective bargaining. And during that time period from the 1940s to the 1970s, we saw a, a, a social contract of sorts where wages and productivity moved up together as the economy got stronger um, uh, workers were able to get their fair share and both uh, uh, business and uh, and the workforce thrived and more people moved into the middle class from the 1980s as unions declined and uh, global competition became much more intense technological change uh, occurred a number of things happened um, the, the Uh, the gap between productivity and wages uh, grew. Productivity continued to grow at a reasonable rate and wages essentially flatlined. And that's why we see so much anger and frustration out there in society. And so today we did a survey over the last two years, two surveys to try to measure what are workers saying about their voice at work. And we're finding three things, one, A majority of workers say that they don't have as much say or influence on uh, issues that they care about at the workplace, whether it's wages and benefits, but also safety, respect on the job, that's the Me Too movement and the feeling that people are being discriminated or or not respected, Um, the issues around having a voice on. Much of are they contributing to producing high quality goods and services that they're proud of and so on? That's a a significant majority of the workforce says we don't we're experiencing less of a voice than we think we ought to have at work The second thing we find Is that when you ask about union membership? There's a dramatic increase In desire to join a union today compared to earlier time periods in the earlier time periods, we've done surveys on this from the 1970s and then in the 1990s, and about one third of the workforce that wasn't organized said they would join a union if given the chance. Today, that's 50%, 48%, but if you add in um, existing workers, it's it's, it's just about 50%. Now, what do they mean by that? And the third thing that we're finding is they want new forms of, of voice. Yes, they, they still want uh uh, 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 something called a union or whatever it is that engages in negotiations to improve um, their economic conditions and and that's very strong yet but they also want a voice on how do they do their work how can they contribute at the workplace to improving operations so that the work is more meaningful and more productive and they're serving their clients their students their patients uh, whoever their customers are uh, more effectively because that helps them feel like they're are really pro- providing a, a, a valued service And secondly, they want a voice in the the big decisions that companies are making uh, and they want to work collaboratively on uh, On shaping those that's that voice gap and they would like to have a voice at the corporate level uh, by sitting on uh, boards of directors so that uh, uh, we get more of a stakeholder view of the firm and not just a, a firm view that they're there just to maximize shareholder value. And so there's a sea change in what workers want. They want more of a voice, but they want new forms of 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 having a voice at all levels of of the uh, of the workplace and the enterprise. And so I think it's up to us to update our policies and our practices not uh, to move forward. The Business Roundtable, as you know, recently uh, made a statement that they think uh, now that they should pay more attention to multiple stakeholder interests, not just share owners, but suppliers, customers, employees, the community, and so on. Well, we've got to hold their feet to the fire. I think those are nice words, but only if they start listening and engaging employees uh, in, that, in, in, in the key decisions that affect uh, how the company actually operates will we see that uh, play out in reality and that's where i think we need to go
0: so so are you finding that this desire is amongst certain demographic um, you know obviously people who are more marginalized are going to, have to be more dissatisfied and i've seen this at harvard where the the graduate students are trying to be right join a union essentially and uh, and and uh, organize themselves because they feel that the uh $20,000 a year stipend is not sufficient right so so i are you finding that that the 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 people who are knowledge workers may not have such a desire but folks who are driving an uber are more likely to feel that way well there's
1: certainly a a good deal of that but it's actually surprisingly uh, broad based across the workforce certainly uh, uh the uber drivers the the graduate students, uh, uh, the people on the front lines uh, that are uh, delivering groceries now, Instacart workers uh, and so on, have uh, um, uh, become much, much more uh, uh, visible and much more vocal in expressing their dissatisfaction with conditions. But it also goes—you know—we had a walkout of Google employees about a year ago, and we're seeing it with uh, professionals in. Um, Communications and entertainment world uh, we're seeing it uh, in companies like amazon the warehouse workers now They're kind of in between they're not the lowest paid But they are on the front lines uh, We're working in pretty harsh conditions And they're they're uh, ex- You know saying that uh, Their safety is at risk and now in in the current environment with uh, All of the the COVID pressures we're seeing more of that escalate so We're seeing teachers who we high school and elementary school teachers who uh, are so critical to the future but we've allowed their compensation to slide relative to others in society over the last couple of decades and we uh, are seeing teachers stand up for their students and their families to say we need better budgets we need public investment in in education and they they're using a phrase that I, I kind of enjoy uh, and appreciate. It's called bargaining for the common good. And that has really resonated in places like Los Angeles, Chicago, and all over the country to say, we're here for ourselves to improve our 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 job conditions, but we're also here to improve um, education and we're here for our students and their families. And they're building coalitions in the community, and it's resonating. So I think, this is a much more widespread phenomenon than just the most marginalized but the most marginalized are the ones who feel this the greatest often don't have the resources to organize Uh, and so we uh, we see people with a little bit more um, potential and resources and uh, maybe a little bit more potential bargaining power uh, um, being more vocal than those at the real bottom end of, of our uh, occupational structure
0: so so you you think it's it's not merely economics uh but it, it's, it, no. there is much more to to it
1: it's 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 economics for sure but it's much more uh, mm-hmm. and, and and a feeling that people want to be respected for their work one of the best assignments that uh, that we use in our courses here at, at sloan with our mbas um, and EMBAs the executive MBAs is to have them every every time we teach this course on managing uh, businesses for people and profits they go out they're assigned to go out and interview workers don't go and talk to your MBA colleagues go and find a, a, a lower income worker and talk to someone who's in a regular job that is a standard job and then go to find someone who's in more of the independent contractor the gig work uh, uh, and ask them to just tell them about their work tell them what they're experiencing tell them what their aspirations are tell them what they they really like and what their their concerns are and it's really an eye-opening assignment the students love it they come back and they say you know, I, I, I've never done that, or I am, you know, we don't do enough of listening to people. And they come back with with very moving stories about how people are living on the margins, and people are, are worried about uh, where they're gonna get healthcare, and people are worried about um, uh, how technology will affect them in the future. And people are are, are, are really proud of what they do when they serve the students in the cafeteria cuz that's where you know they, they, they find some of uh, these people or where the the people in the dorms are are uh, taking care of their security at night or where the the uber drivers are are taking them and they hear their stories about uh, how this is nice really flexible work for them but they don't have any voice and when when a, they get a customer who maybe has a bad day and gives them a bad rating they have no way of really getting to a person at uber or lyft they just get this algorithm and they they can't change it even if they've had an abusive customer and so they, this lack of an ability to be respected by first the customers or by the the company uh, really comes through to the students mm-hmm. and so i think that's what uh, we're hearing that we they are people are really excited about the work they do when they serve our students when they serve the customer as an Uber driver and maybe take someone somewhere that maybe an elderly person or whoever has a particular problem they all have good stories about how good they feel about it and maybe they've gone the extra extra mile in that case of helping that person uh, and 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 people want to do a great job in what they do, and they wanna feel valued and respected. And that's the message that
0: we're getting uh, when we go out and talk with them. And, and that's why we find that a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Now that's, that's very uh, important for you know, for, to, to build that empathy amongst the students. Uh, so this is great that you're doing this. So, so have you looked at um, some of the blockchain companies that how they distribute uh, ownership is—is uh, is that the way of the future? Perhaps. Well, I, I think
1: blockchain is one of those technologies that, if we put it to good use, uh, it can have enormous, enormous value. I am not an expert on blockchain, to be to be sure, but what I see it—it it, is—is it does provide new ways of uh, managing commerce and managing communication and uh, the flow of, of resources just think of the ways in which uh, uh perhaps in uh, in 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 the south uh, southern part of the hemisphere in the area that you know very very well how much we could use blockchain to empower uh in the informal sector the entrepreneurs the women the men who are in the small markets and don't have access to to effective banking and capital, uh, and to use blockchain to, to, to extend it out to them so that they can get resources uh, flowing even faster and they can find markets and they can get payment uh, in, in efficient ways, in reliable ways, um, and, uh, uh, and, and make their part of the economy much more productive and maybe more rewarding for them. So I think blockchain has an enormous potential. Now it obviously is as we all know can be misused and has been misused and so we have to be very careful about it um, uh, But I I do think we shouldn't be afraid of it. We should ask how do we unharness uh, The potential of this wonderful uh, Technology, you know in 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 the past, uh, you know when uh, 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 You know banking uh, moved more and more toward online options um, that was viewed as, oh, that's only, you know, got limited potential and yeah. so on. Well, I can't remember the last time I went to a bank. Yeah. Uh, because you can do so much. Uh, there's obviously some things you need a person. Uh, and you can still do uh, some of this with pre- people online. But obviously there are some transactions that, that, that you have to actually physically go. And that will never never change. But so much of this now can be done through uh, through electronic transfers and other kinds of uh, e-commerce and we're going to see more and more of that and blockchain has a particular uh, role to play in making that part of our economy more efficient and more accessible and that means we've got to make sure that our broadband uh, 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 technologies are distributed Across the world into our rural and our low-income areas so that uh, everyone can benefit from it Uh, We're we're seeing this in a little bit different way now with all of our children and in our case grandchildren who are uh, having to uh, uh, be online for their Their education because they can't the schools are closed. Well, uh, I watched uh, we had our two little granddaughters here for uh, uh, about a week and they started when they started the online. And it was wonderful to see the teachers and how they uh, adapted the lesson plans and how, the, how this worked. Well, that was fine because we have good broad- broadband in our house, we, they have their own laptop and we have an extra laptop and so on. So the technology was all there for them to, to participate. But the, the, our, our, our younger granddaughter who is in sixth grade noticed not everybody in our class was online. Where are they? Well some of them probably didn't have those advantages. We've got to extend all this wonderful technology uh, across our society so that it's not only the the privileged uh, who can Make use of
0: the online opportunities, but everyone can. Yeah, no, I, I think now this is so mainstream that uh, it's, it's quite sad, right? That uh, some people still don't have access. This yes, is, uh, we, we and that's should... a solvable problem. Yeah. I mean yeah. that
1: that's eminently solvable. It just takes investment and probably public, public and private investment.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To make it yeah, so, so we, uh, we haven't really touched upon one theme, which is the gig economy and how there is a growth in freelancing. <clears throat> can, can you talk about that, if that, that's come up in your work? Sure, and, and, and we spend a lot of time on, on,
1: on this. Uh, and again, I think the, the freelance economy has all kinds of uh, potential positive potential and 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 is already because it provides more flexibility and uh, for people who who can attract uh, business from multiple customers opportunity to learn and to see how the business changes over time and to keep up with uh, uh, innovations and new technologies that they may encounter with different customers and so on and uh, I and and the flexibility that that provides uh, in terms of scheduling and fitting into one's life. uh, All of those are real advantages that we need uh, to build on. What we haven't solved though, is the fact that our employment systems, at least in the United States, but really around the world, were all built on an old model of standard employment where the firm took care of training, took care of in the United States health benefits, provided uh, uh, the safety precautions, managed safety, and provided uh, sick leave, and provided all of those kinds of, uh, of, of safety net benefits. And we haven't figured out how to do that with this new part of the workforce. So the, the, the many of the people who are flourishing in the gig economy that I know, many of them have a partner, spouse, who has a regular job, To get those benefits and to get that coverage that's needed uh, for healthcare and so on, and that allows the other partner to uh, then explore these other opportunities. But but we you know many people don't have that family structure or have that that kind of uh, opportunity, and so we can't. We have got to we've got to extend the safety net to um, uh, to everybody who works and figure out what's the right way to adapt. Uh, uh, this and not try to uh, you know push everyone back into regular employment. That's not going to happen. But let's let this gig economy find its appropriate level, whatever that level is, and let's make sure that as we do that, we bring uh, the necessary functions to support the gig workers and to allow them to do their innovative work um, and, and still have the protections. Uh, in In a time when uh, uh, a crisis hits, or they or someone in their family is sick and uh, or they're out of work uh, for family reasons to have a child or or whatever. Uh, and so we've got to extend those those benefits. and that 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 takes political will. Mm-hmm. There are solutions. there There are combinations of of ways to do this, and some countries are doing a better job of it. Uh, but i think it's a mistake to try to push everyone back into this old classification of standard work because that's not the way uh, this work is being done and uh, in some cases people are misclassified and they should be we should rectify that and enforce that but i think we need to have a much more flexible way to uh, provide the basic
0: labor market uh, Protections to the gig workers. So, on that note, so what does the future of work look like um, 30 years from today, 50 years from today? You, you see um, structural changes, you see more people freelancing. What does that look like? Well, it's, it's a little hard to, to predict the long run. Most most of the times, people are wrong in those predictions.
1: <laughs> but I, I think the, the trends are clear. There's no question there's going to be growth in independent work. Uh, of some sort or another uh, where we have uh, uh, a worldwide market for uh, for services and people can use the technology that we're using here and, and, and allied ways of getting their ideas, their talents, their services, the, the goods that they can produce uh, distributed worldwide and that leads to uh, 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 more Entrepreneurial opportunities, and that leads to uh, more uh, uh, work like like uh, uh, we find in the gig economy. And we we see the platforms. Uh, I mean, while I'm a big critic of the way in which Uber has carried out its responsibilities, the fact is that platform technologies are becoming much much more efficient at linking customers and 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 providers in all kinds of markets. So let's use that technology and let's let it grow. Let's let it find its own level. I don't think the world is all going to go in a gig world uh direction. There's going to be a mix, but we're going to have a diversity of employment relationships. And we are going to have, I think, uh even some other ones that while they might already exist, I think they're going to grow. I think employee ownership is an opportunity. I think we're going to see more collective responses. Um, to uh, how we organize and more networks of entrepreneurs who link together in some fashion and have to share uh, markets and, uh, and, and uh, opportunities and protect each other and stabilize uh, their incomes a little bit more. And, and, and we already see that in lots of markets where I might be an independent contractor, but you and I might have a business relationship. So that when I'm a little short, if I contact you and you're overloaded, we already have an understanding. We know each other, we know what each other are good at and, uh, and, and who else is in our network. We can rely on them, we can get the jobs done and we can share some of the benefits. I think we're gonna see a lot of that. And that requires, again, a different way of, of sharing responsibilities, benefits, information, payment, trust. Those have to be high trust networks, or you know, we we don't we don't really get the benefits of it if, if it's an adversarial kind of situation, or a legalistic one where you and I are always suing each other about, you know, who's got the right payment or and, and, and so on. That has to be a high trust uh, set of of relationships, and I think that's where we're going to see enormous growth um, in the future. I don't know how big that will come become, but I think the days of the single independent contractor uh, while they may continue to grow I think we're going to see that morph into more of a network
0: set of arrangements that have to be worked out Yeah. yes so I, absolutely I think the, the there's a lot of interdependence and if we can build those kind of networks and uh, and, and also safety nets benefits I think yes. that can yes. benefit everyone
1: yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's an exciting time
1: yes yeah some people see it as a scary time and, yeah and i i understand that but if we are proactive in shaping work of the future then i think we will get the best out of technology the best out of our human potential and the best out of our institutional uh, relationships uh but that's
0: that's a tall order and we need to we need to get on with the task Great. Well, this is a great uh, place to stop and really appreciate your time. It's been such a pleasure, uh, from Professor Kohan, uh, to, to be with you today. Really enjoyed
1: this.